Turn with me to the book of John, the Gospel of John, and we're getting closer and closer to the end of this uh, uh, study. Uh, we're in chapter 20, uh, only one chapter left. I promise I will not spend as many uh, Sundays on chapter 20 as I did on chapter 17, but uh, uh, we're here in chapter 20 of the Gospel of John. And this morning we're continuing our series of messages, The Hour Has Come, and we want to look at this morning at the resurrection. Looking this morning at the resurrection. Now I realize I've used this uh, illustration not that long ago, but I believe it's a fitting example of false teaching in regard to going to heaven. Uh, There was a cult called Heaven's Gate some years ago. Um, and that's rather innocent sounding name for a group of religious devotees. And yet that innocence turned to tragedy as 39 people committed suicide over a three day period so that they could, uh, enter heaven's gate. Uh, this curious cult mixed with a little Bible and a little bit of astronomy and a little new age and a little computer and, and a lot of weirdness became a deadly religion. It seems that with the appearance of Hale-Bopp Kama in the northwestern evening sky, members of the cult thought they could enter into an extraterrestrial spaceship which was following that comet and thus opening the way to Heaven's Gate. And their devotion was to UFOs. Now yesterday, the world was supposed to come to an end, right? Did you remember that? You heard about that, right? And I thought, well, no use preparing messages, right? But I did anyway, okay, because I didn't believe it. But we shake our heads, you know, at the strangeness of those kinds of religion or those kinds of things, teachings. And we wonder how anyone could be so deluded to join a group like this cult and meet with such a horrible end. And yet, with all of its weirdness and members of that cult that believed their teaching to be the truth, they laid down their lives for it. But a belief focused on a delusion ends in eternal calamity. And it's a ruse, it's a trick, it's a deception that leads only to the gates of hell. And so as difficult as it may seem to us, there are many people who view the early Christians' claim of the resurrection of Christ in much the same way. Uh, Paul stood on Mars Hill in ancient Athens at the center of Greek religious life, and he proclaimed the only true God. And after declaring who God is, Paul declared that this God demands repentance of every man in light of the fact that he will judge the world through his Son, whom he raised from the dead. And upon hearing the teaching of the resurrection, many of the Athenians scoffed at him. They thought that Paul was strange, and that his teaching of the resurrection of Christ was even stranger. And so the source of their scoffing in Athens was their own ignorance of the living God and the uniqueness of the soul of men. They had erected a memorial to the unknown God, and Paul declared to them that this God and what he had done to save sinful men through his Son was Jesus Christ. Critical to the saving work of Christ is resurrection from the dead. Now, the whole Christian faith hinges on the resurrection. For centuries, scoffers have tried to ridicule the idea of resurrection. 
And yet the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a truth which anchors our eternity upon the solid foundation of the gospel of Christ. It is not just some minor component of our salvation. The resurrection stands with the death of Christ as the only means for sinners to be reconciled to God. And so to truly understand the resurrection is to be forever changed. And I do not believe that you can honestly look at the resurrection with its implications and remain neutral concerning Jesus Christ's call to follow him. Unfortunately, many people consider the resurrection to be a ruse, a trick, or a deception devised by the disciples to dupe the masses into allegiance. And some only uh, take a peek at the resurrection, but they fail to believe. Some assume its veracity without considering its power and its demand. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ confronts each one of us with our profound need to have the work of Jesus Christ applied fully to our lives. Do you truly understand the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, I want you to consider with me the call to understand the resurrection. Notice, first of all, a resurrection without understanding. A resurrection without understanding. Now the resurrection was not just a first century idea. Because the Old Testament prophesies the resurrection of the Messiah. Psalm 16 and verse 10 says, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. That's a messianic psalm that reminds us that while all of us are subject to the decay of death, the resurrection powerfully prevented this natural course from affecting our Lord. Psalm 110 speaks of the Christ's kingship and his kingdom. A dead king is no use to the kingdom. It says in Psalm 110, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. You see, he rules over an eternal kingdom, one which death could not stop because of the power of resurrection. And the great gospel of the Old Testament in Isaiah 53 tells us of the agony of Christ's death, bearing the iniquities of sinners before God's justice bar. And with triumph, Isaiah declares, yet it is It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The Messiah's death would not put an end to what he would see or his continuing prosperity by the Father's hand. There would be much, much more to come following his death because of the resurrection. And yet with all the Old Testament teaching on the resurrection, the disciples were still dull in their understanding of the empty tomb. They had not really grasped the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So notice, first of all, the necessity of the resurrection. When John saw the empty tomb, it tells us in verse 8, he believed. That belief was not by any means full, but it was moving in the right direction. 
Some would suggest that John simply believed Mary's report that the tomb was empty. Others would say that John believed that something wonderful had happened. I believe his belief was focused upon the truth that Jesus is God. And so the absence of his body, the linen wrappings in their place, the promises of Christ pointed him to a wonderful truth that Christ was indeed alive. What all of that meant in terms of salvation, John probably did not understand, but in terms of his worship, he was overwhelmed by the empty tomb. And he makes a very important comment for us here that underscores the necessity. Look at it in verse 9. He says there in verse 9, For as yet they knew not the Scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Now the emphasis there needs to be put on the word must. It shows the necessity of the, the resurrection. So why is the resurrection necessary? A denial of the resurrection is really a denial of the gospel and God's ability to save sinners. And so the resurrection is a must, not simply a fanciful religious tale, not some myth that somebody made up. It was necessary, notice, for several reasons. First of all, the resurrection vindicates the false charges of blasphemy which the Jews made concerning Jesus, treating him as if, as if he was a criminal. You see, the Jews who instigated the arrest and crucifixion of our Lord also added charges that he was a criminal of the basest sort. He deserved the shameful death of crucifixion. The resurrection proved that Jesus, who is, uh, is who he declared himself to be, that is the Son of God with power, he was not a criminal deserving death. Secondly, the resurrection gave evidence that the sacrifice of Christ satisfied for man's guilt and condemnation before God. It was a declaration that the Father had sent Christ to do in the cross what the Father had sent Christ to do in the cross it had been accomplished. That atonement was made and satisfaction was complete. We know that Jesus paid it all by the fact that his death could not keep him as it had all other humans. Thirdly, the resurrection demonstrates it demonstrates that Jesus, as the captain of our salvation, has conquered the enemy of sin, death, and Satan. There's no more fear of death because its sting has been taken away and its power has been conquered through the work of Christ. Fourthly, the resurrection was necessary to enable Christ to be our sanctifier, our advocate, and our king. The continuing work of the Spirit began only after the resurrection. Christ continues to intercede for us and to reign over us. But a dead man cannot sanctify. A dead man cannot mediate. A dead man cannot reign as a king. His death or his resurrection was necessary. And then fifthly, the resurrection of Christ is, an, is the earnest or the proof of our own resurrection. Because he was raised from the dead, so also shall we who are in him be raised from the dead. His resurrection is the first fruits of those who will ultimately be raised in his likeness. This is why we call the resurrection the hinge of our salvation. As Paul put it, and if Christ be not ridden, uh, risen, 
then our preaching is vain. And your faith is also vain. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, we're wasting our time. I'm uh, wasting my breath this morning. The resurrection declares the finality that our salvation has been accomplished through our mediator, Jesus Christ and the Lord. And so we can appeal to anyone who, who does not have the assurance of a right standing with God that through Jesus Christ there is hope. Because he is alive. He accomplished what he needed to accomplish and he conquered the sin that enslaves us having removed the curse of Adam's fall And we're brought into a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Notice, secondly, false conclusions. In some way, it's rather easy to see these truths after 2,000 years of Christian history. But you know, for the first disciples, it was not so easy. They did not have the benefit of the testimony of the four Gospels. They didn't have the Word of God printed for them and the four Gospels and all the things that took place there. They didn't have the detailed explanations of the resurrection that you find in our uh, the, the epistles. And at the dawning of the resurrection, we see some early followers drawing some false conclusions. Mary Magdalene stated in verse 13, They have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And then down in verse 15, it says, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. You see, Mary was very earnest about Christ. She desired to find his body. She had seen the lifeless body of the crucified Lord. Now she was the first to witness the empty tomb. And rather than thinking of a resurrection which Christ had predicted, she could only think that the further, uh, the, that further, further adversity had afflicted her. He was gone. And now it was going to be even harder. Life was going to be even harder without him. Now, grave robbing was not an uncommon thing in that era. It was so rampant that later Roman emperor had made it a crime punishable by death. When the discoverer of the treasures of King Tut, Howard Carter, began to unearth the 3,300-year-old tomb of a boy king, he found that grave robbers had preceded him by about 2,000 years. But grave robbery was not, was out in this case, that was not part of this scene. Robbers would not have taken the time to unwind the expensive linen cloths from the body and They would not take it with them. Plus the tomb was guarded by Roman soldiers who had the authority to kill anyone who attempted to enter the tomb. But Mary did not understand the resurrection. She did not grasp at this point the necessity of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. She was a faithful follower of Christ, but her eyes had not been opened to see the need to rest in his death and his resurrection for her eternal salvation. And there are a lot of people that are very similar to Mary Magdalene. They have an affection for Christ. They admire him. Perhaps they've even made some commitments to follow him. But they fail to see the power of his death and his resurrection. They've made some false conclusions. Listen, Jesus Christ came to save sinners through the bearing of their sin and the guilt 
at the cross, rising from the dead to declare the sufficiency of his work. Jesus is not simply a great religious figure to admire. He is Lord of all, and he demands that we repent of our sins and trust in him and his finished work for our eternal salvation. So first of all, we see a resurrection without understanding. Secondly, we see a resurrection with partial understanding. At least John was not like Mary at this point. It tells us here, Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. He may not have grasped all the saving ramifications involving in the empty tomb, but he knew that the Messiah was accomplishing what no one else had ever done. John knew that death could not hold his Lord. Jesus Christ was alive. And so we see, first of all, an investigation. Investigation. When Peter and John first heard the report of the empty tomb, they would race to see if it was so. We go back to verse 3. And notice there it says, Peter therefore went forth and the other disciple, that is John, and came to the sepulcher. Later, we're going to see the persistence of Mary Magdalene who continued to seek an answer to the dilemma of the empty tomb. There was an investigation on their part. They had all seen the lifeless body of the Lord and they had all seen it wrapped in linen cloths with burial spices spread over his body. They knew that a huge stone had been rolled in front of the tomb and that had been sealed by the Jewish authorities. They also understood that Roman guards stood there in front of it so no grave robbers could come near. They knew all of this, but the tomb was empty. They found only the grave clothes lying as though his body simply passed through them. And they were puzzled because they understood that the myrrh used in burials would have cemented those linens to his body. But the clothes are in their place and the face cloth rolled up and set aside by itself. You almost have the makings of a great mystery here to be solved. These followers of Christ wanted answers. They began to investigate what had happened. And it was in the process of investigation that Mary found her answer. And I would point out this very simple truth to you this morning. For the reason that if the resurrection of Christ is true, and I believe it is, then it demands your investigation to its claims and its purpose. You know, some have heard of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but only can give it a, def- uh, a definite answer, uh, cannot give a definite answer as to why Jesus had to die or why he had to be raised from the death. People just kind of assume it. It's kind of religious rhetoric. But can one be so casual about something so incredible? Can one consider the resurrection only one day out of the year? And the rest of the year live as though they please and like it wasn't even true. And my challenge would be to seriously investigate the claims of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look into the truth that Jesus Christ claimed to be God himself. Look into the truth that Jesus Christ never sinned. Never in thought or deed. Look into the truth that Jesus' agony in the Garden of Gethsemane leading to his death. Why was, he, why was it agonizing? Surely it was not simply due to the pain of physical death, which he faced. You know, many men before and after had faced death without flinching. 
Could it be that the agony of his death was due to the weight of the bearing of your sin and my sin before God? Could it be that he understood the horrible wrath which would fall upon him on our behalf? A wrath that you and I deserve? Could the cross be something to be considered? And what took place? What did Jesus mean when in his last breath he cried, It is finished? We must understand that Jesus did not die to inspire us to give ourselves for others. He didn't inspire us, motivate us to give our lives. Many people have done that. What Jesus did in his death on the cross had to be unique. And so what did he do? He claimed that he would rise from the dead. And the whole New Testament gives detailed testimony to this truth. Over 500 people saw Jesus Christ after the resurrection. His disciples all claimed him to be true. And to a man, they all were either martyred or exiled for their testimony. Could they have continued with such a testimony in the face of persecution and execution had it not been true? An investigation. Secondly, a contemplation. In the person's investigation of the claims of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the challenge is uh, for us to contemplate what one sees. And that's what John and Peter and Mary are doing. They're puzzled. They certainly did not understand all that they had seen, but they continued to seek and to think about it. Their minds were consumed with the thoughts of Jesus dying on the cross and Jesus rising from the dead. I think it's this is gathered from the narrative as John ran first to the tomb. Go back to verse 5 and notice there it says, Stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. And then verse 8, it says, Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. He saw and believed. With his physical eyes, he saw. But with his heart and his mind, he believed the report of his physical sight. We do not have such occasion to physically look at the empty tomb. I don't know if you've been to Israel or not. I've heard of a number of people who report on their visit to Jerusalem, seeing the garden tomb that is reported to be the burial place of Christ. Their conclusion? It's empty. But you do not have to travel to Jerusalem to see that. All you have to do is look right here. Look into the book, the Bible, and see the declaration of the gospel writers that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Hear the testimony of its witnesses, including the persecutor of the church, Saul of Tarsus, who later became Paul. And he said, but now is Christ risen from the dead, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty. Look at the record of the centuries as believer after believer has been transformed by the power of the crucified, risen Lord. He lives. Can you see the record of God's word and the unimpeachable testimony of believers through the centuries and be careless with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? If one is to have any hope of eternity or any hope of knowing God, then one must investigate to see if what I'm preaching to you this morning is true. One must contemplate it as the only hope for sinful man. 
But let's be more pointed. One must see the death and resurrection of Christ as their only hope for right standing before an almighty God. A resurrection without understanding. A resurrection with partial understanding. And that brings us to a resurrection with understanding. It is true that the resurrection became the central message in preaching of the early church. Now, of course, the mention of the resurrection necessitates, first of all, a death. The death of Jesus Christ was a propitiatory death. By that I mean his death was satisfaction for the demands upon us due to our guilt before God. We all died in Adam. We bear in our own image the curse of his fall in the Garden of Eden. We stand condemned before God and under his wrath as lawbreakers. Our own enmity with God prevents us from putting ourselves in a more suitable condition with God. And so out of God's great mercy and love, Jesus Christ died on behalf of sinners so that sinners might become righteous before God. But how do we know that his death was accepted by God? That's where we see the authenticating power in his resurrection. But it is possible for you to have all this in your head and still be at enmity with God. I would suppose that there are some here perhaps this morning who listen that would say, I believe all that you've said. But you're still full of guilt. You still have no assurance of God's favor upon your life. So how can this change? Well, notice, first of all, an encounter. An encounter. Mary did not understand the resurrection, but she investigated and she contemplated what she had seen. And still she was not affected until she encountered Jesus Christ. And when she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there and did not know that he was Jesus. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman, why weepest thou? Whom are ye, whom are ye seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto Mary, and she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. This was to be one of the most moving portions of God's word, I think. Mary's seeing Jesus, and yet she did not see him. And then suddenly her eyes are opened and she spoke uh, as he spoke her name. And with that encounter, faith became sight and Mary knew that her Redeemer was alive. And you can see the truths written in black and ink on paper and never be moved. You can read these accounts over and over and still not be moved. But when you encounter Jesus Christ, all that you can do is humble yourself in the dust and cry, Rabboni. Listen, people still have encounters with Jesus Christ. People are still being saved today. I'm not speaking of some mysterious physical encounter, some vision. No, I'm referring to a faith encounter. One can encounter Jesus Christ through the reading of God's word, through the preaching of God's word, uh, through the teaching of God's word in a Bible study through the testimony of someone who became a new creature in Christ, through the goodness of God shown to you in his acts of mercy, through the singing of Christ-filled hymns and through the act of worship. 
Perhaps you've encountered him this morning, or better yet, in your own heart, he has called your name as he did that of Mary. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand, he said back in John chapter 10. You see, when you encounter Jesus Christ, I can assure you, you will become conscious of your own sinfulness and unworthiness. Even as Isaiah saw the Lord and cried, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Even as Isaiah, you too will see your own sinfulness. And as Mary, you too will see the worthiness and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. She clung to him as she could, as if she would never let him go. But she did not have to do that. Jesus kept her in his hand forever, just as he does for all who come to him in faith. And when you encounter Jesus Christ, you cannot be neutral. When you see him as the Savior, the Lord, the Mediator, you will run to him for mercy and for grace. And that leads us to a response. Mary's response was quite simple. She immediately knew who Jesus was. In a great submission, she called Rabboni. It's a title reserved for an elevated, illustrious teacher. And though we do not use it in our common tongue, it carries the same effect that Mary called Jesus Lord or Master. Later, when Thomas encountered the risen Lord, he uttered the confession, My Lord and my God. Both of these are responses of faith and submission to the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the focal point of our study this morning in God's Word. If your understanding of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ seems to suddenly be running over, then believe in Him. Cast aside your doubts. Turn from your self-trust. Repent from your own sin against God. And like Mary, embrace Jesus Christ in faith trusting in Him alone as your mediator before God, as your redeemer from the bondage of sin, and as your Lord who rules over your life. Faith is really our believing response to the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. By faith, we lay claim to the merits of Jesus Christ as our own merits. By faith, we open our minds and our hearts to receive the Holy Spirit to indwell us. And by faith... We rest in Jesus Christ and Him crucified and raised from the dead as our only sufficiency in God. Mary gave testimony to understanding the resurrection in verse 18. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that He had spoken these things to her. The reality of Christ's saving work in your life means that you will want to declare that to other people as well, to other believers. I have seen the Lord. That's a testimony. That is, the Lord has saved me, and I belong to Him forever. I have received of the wellsprings of His mercy and grace. I truly believe, and I will never be the same. Is that your testimony this morning? If not, I appeal to you to consider the cross of Christ and the empty tomb. The truth of the resurrection demands your response of repentance and faith. Now, if the resurrection is just a ruse or a deception or a trick, then I recommend you never set foot in church again. 
Nor should we ever give a passing thought to Jesus Christ. Again, we're just wasting our time. But I tell you, it's not a trick. It's not deception. It's real. And this is truth upon which we stand. And so we cry to this living Lord for mercy and grace to secure us in his righteousness forever. I trust you can do that this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the